Tēnā koutou, I'm Karen Hay and thanks for joining me for the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast, where we dive deep into the archives to hear New Zealand authors share their experience of living as a writer in Aotearoa. Today we'll hear from a writer whose blend of passionate trade union experience and his national writing success helped form the NZSA as we know it today. Tony Simpson is an award-winning writer who's published 17 books of New Zealand history. He's a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit and has held many fellowships and awards, recognising his dedication to historical research. Tony was also president of PennNZ during the turbulent 1980s. Tony began his career in broadcasting and union organising, yet as he told Sarah Gaitanos in an interview in March 2005, whatever his day job was, he was also always writing. By that stage I was writing regularly. I was doing journalism of one sort or another and and current affairs stuff and quite a lot of stuff for the student papers. Uh, And I decided that it would be a good idea if if I had a crack at a book. I've been reading an oral history of Studs Terkel's called Hard Times, which is an account of the Depression in America and the recollection of the people who, who were there at the time and who experienced it. And I thought, you could probably do something like that here. And so I did, and that's how the sugar bag years came to be written. Had any of the people you interviewed for that been people you had already in- interviewed? And no. It's a completely new no, project. It's a completely new project. Some of the people I knew in other connections, mm-hmm. uh, people like Bill Sutch, for example, mm-hmm. who appears in the book, people like Conrad Bollinger, who's there, and who was a, a child of the Depression, uh, and so on and so on. Quite a few people that I knew already, uh, and colleagues and so on. I once said to somebody, if you wanted to write the sugar bag years, all you had to do was to go out into the street and interview the first hundred people you met who were over the age of 40, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you'd have your book then. But making a selection of who you were going to interview would have been quite, quite a task because did you consciously try to get people who had different experiences? Yeah, I, that happened almost automatically. But I did go out of my way to, to get a fairly wide coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, women, particularly people who were children at the time, uh, what their experience was, which was, of course, quite different to the adult experience. People who'd been in work throughout, people who'd been in work camps and so on. And the, and the further I went into it, the more I identified the gaps. There's a number of Maori people I did who were interviewed in it, but I didn't identify them specifically for that reason. You haven't I identified anyone? No. I had, I had quite a long debate about that with my publisher. And, and, well, not a debate, we discussed it at some length. We decided in the end that that might very well detract from the impact that we were seeking to achieve. Mm -hmm. What we wanted to do was to present or to produce a genuine expression of popular response to what had been a major traumatic event Mm -hmm. in our economy, our society and in our culture. Uh, And so we decided that if you put the names there, people would say, oh, that's Bill Such, and that would detract from, from the impact of what we were trying to achieve. And so we decided that we wouldn't put the names. Now, you've kept yourself, your presence, very much out of it. Obviously, you've done far, far more work, and, and this is the end result, the gem, mm. as it were, of a huge amount of, of research and, and yes. putting things together. How much of it was edited? I went through and edited it myself, uh, and... What I was mainly intent on doing when I was doing the editing of that was to retain the, the feeling. Uh, it's very 
easy to lose that. One of the things I learned when I was working in broadcasting is that the way that people put things together and the way they express them carries as much meaning as the words themselves. And so in the editing process, as well as trying to get as broad a spectrum of experience as I could, uh, I also tried to make sure in the editing of any particular item that I maintained that, that cadence and sense that you got on the way people were saying. Some of it was done on uh, tape recording. Some was done um, by recollection. People wrote things for me. And then I would normally edit that into active voice because people are taught to write in passive voice and it doesn't come over all that well. Uh, and some of it I just took notes at the time and then went back to the people afterwards and said, look, here's what I think you said and we'd work our way through it and do it that way. Mm. It was pretty much a hit and miss process, you know, I mean it was real mm. amateur stuff because nobody was doing much of oral history in, in a conscious sense in those days. Although of course, when you look at it objectively, people like Jim Henderson and Hop Owen have been doing oral history for decades, mm. you know, that was what they did. Uh, but, but yeah, I think this is the first time in this country by and large, that someone had tried to reduce it to a print medium, to a book. There had been uh, people in the past had done that sort of stuff. If you go to Cowan's history of the, of the land wars of the 19th century, a book published in two volumes in the 1920s, you'll see that a lot of that is actually based upon the recollections of old soldiers who took part in particular battles, particularly for the latter part. So it wasn't a, a new technique. And as I said, you had people like Studs Terkel in America who had been doing it for young. You had uh, at first took it to Reeds, didn't you? I took it to a range of publishers, and uh, and they were very dismissive mm. of the whole thing. Why? Why? Only I, don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Some of them were frankly bewildered. I don't think they had the faintest idea what I was talking about. It sounded pretty wacky to them. Was this <clears> the concept of it, or did you take the finished book? No, to no, them? I took the concept. And, and some examples of the sorts of things, and I'd, I'd play them some of the tapes of the programs I'd made and stuff. Some understood what I was getting at, but said, oh, no, no, there's no market for that sort of thing. And eventually I took it to Alistair Taylor. Now, Alistair and I had known one another for some years, and, and I always enjoy Alistair. He's still around, but sometimes I think that, that his business practices leave something to be desired. And so I preferred not to work with him from that point of view, if I could avoid it. But I'd done a bit of work for him, and he had been successfully publishing some books. He'd set up his own publishing company and, and had run a couple of magazines, and so on, for which I'd written. We got into conversation one day, and he said, what are you working on? And I told him, and he said, oh, I'll publish that. And he was onto it straight away. So I was a bit reluctant, but we talked it through and got a contract, and all that sort of stuff, and eventually Alistair published it. And of course, the result was that it was an astonishing success. Mm -hmm. It seems to have struck a genuine chord with people. And it was continuously, it's just, just these last couple of years, for the first time for 25 odd years, gone out of print. It's been reprinted four times, is that right? Yes, well, it had been four different publishers. There had been numerous reprints, but mm -hmm. four different editions. Mm -hmm. Now that suddenly marked you as a writer, um, and you had already joined Penn. No. I joined Penn as a result of writing The Sugar Bag Years. I then had a letter from someone, I forget who it was, might have been the secretary of Penn of the day, saying we note that you've won an award for this and mm -hmm. so on. We wonder if you've thought about joining Penn. Now I had no idea what Penn was. Never encountered it. I didn't grow up in one of those literary 
families where people knew all about this stuff. So you but didn't have writers who were friends either? No, mm. no. Oh, I knew a few writers from my time in broadcasting, but I knew far more actors, mm. really, uh, from people I'd produced and so on. And of course, I knew lots of painters and, and artists of one sort or another. But I got this letter saying, oh, there's a writer's organisation called Penn. And I thought, oh, well, fair enough. Uh, by that stage, of course, I was, I was working for a trade union anyway, so if, I thought if there's a collective body representing writers, I probably ought to join it. So I did, and just started going along to the meetings. The early 70s, particularly, was a period of immense ferment culturally in New Zealand. People were starting to explore the sorts of things that have brought us to the situation where we're now much more conscious of who and what we are. I got involved with the Actors' Union, Actors' Equity. One of the things I got involved in was something that was set up in those days called the New Zealand Quota Committee. People were very interested in getting a higher New Zealand content on radio and television, music and spoken stuff and, and so on. And it was also a time when people were getting much more active in organising and becoming more collective in their approach to this sort of thing. At this stage, television was beginning to expand their production uh, of local stuff. And in fact, I had written a couple of... Uh, of scripts for television, which had been jointly produced and directed by myself and Peter Coates. So we had this uh, committee going, and, and quite a lot of people were involved in writing for television. And some of them came to me because they knew me in my capacity as Secretary of Actors' Equity and said, look, uh, we think that Penn ought to extend its coverage so that they also take us on board, uh, that, that we are also represented by them in some way. I said, well, we can, uh, we can try. It transpired that Penn was not very interested. But bear in mind that this is also happening in the context of a debate growing up about what was the role of Penn yes. in New Zealand. People who wanted to have representation as writers through Penn, if they worked for television, wanted to belong to Penn because Penn and the Broadcasting Corporation talked to one another. After a lengthy debate, Penn said no. A very stormy debate. Now, I was always extremely grumpy about this because I wouldn't wish to impute impure motives to him, but it stuck out like a sore thumb that the president of Penn was also a senior manager of the Broadcasting Corporation, namely Mr Ian Cross. And I've always been personally convinced that he got his roles confused, shall we say, and strongly advised against Penn, representing writers who would then have wished to go on and negotiate an industrial agreement. The result was the writers for television got extraordinarily annoyed with Penn and went off and set up the Writers Guild, which became a much more militant organisation. But the upshot was, distressingly from my subsequent point of view, was there was very bad feeling between Penn and the Writers Guild for about a decade at least. Mm. I've, I've often wondered about the role of Ian Cross in that. He resigned from the organisation later in the 80s. Yes. But he resigned as president, president when the Authors Fund became... Yes, that's, that's something of a curiosity, actually, because Ian Cross was not really responsible for that. One of his predecessors as president of Penn was the one who actually got the commitment from the Labour Party to do it if they became the government. But when they became the government in 72, Cross happened to be the president of Penn. And so he was sent along to talk to Norman Kirk about it. And Kirk said, yes, we did promise that, and sent him off to see Henry May, who was the Minister of Internal Affairs. 
And Ian went off to see Henry, and Henry said, well, yes, all right, Norman said, I've got to do this. How much is it going to cost? And Ian said, I don't know. And Henry May said, well, I can't take something to Cabinet without telling them how much it's going to cost. They'll laugh at me. And Ian said to me subsequently that, he, he said the first figure that came into his head, it'll cost $200,000. So Henry wrote this down. And away it went to Cabinet, saying the estimate was it would cost $200,000, and they knocked it back to 100000 and that was the basis of the, the author's fund. What I'll do here is refer to the interview that I've done with Ian, yes. and, with, and of course to the records in the Gazette and in the Minutes. Sure. For, um, and you'll be able to the tie record the dates down there. quite. But, uh, yes, it, um, mm. the dates are there, and the, and the actual procedure whereby Ian... Um, well, I'll leave that, I'll leave yeah, sure. that for anyone who was listening to this. The, the, the reason I was telling you that stuff about the Writers Guild and so on was to make it clear that this, the debate that was also going on within mm. Penn about what their role ought to be and which subsequently led to them turning themselves into a society mm. of authors is really, its, its origination is located in that, in that mm. earlier decade mm. where people were talking about the role of cultural organisations and whether or not they should act collectively much more as mm. trade unions on behalf of the members. That was certainly the issue. And I remember, I mean, in the minutes it is recorded that they had a vote and Michael King, Carl Stead and Ian Cross as president said this was the will of Penn, that they were not a political organisation and um, you had your objection recorded. But yes. there clearly was a strong feeling oh, yes. in both mm. sides mm. of this. Ian resigned because he felt there was a conflict of interest once he was appointed to the Broadcasting Corporation. So I think when we check mm. those dates up there... But bear in mind, the period I'm talking about... Went, yes, the period I'm talking about, he was editor of The Listener. Yes, that's right, mm. yes. Shortly after that, of course, I left and went to live in England mm. and was there for three years. Now, how that came about is mm. interesting. You were with the Arts Council? Yes, uh, because of my role with Actors' Equity, which I'd been with for three years, and, and the work I'd done within the PSA for broadcasting, mm. I developed something of a profile politically in that area. And so when uh, the government, new government came to power and there came time to appoint a chairman of the Arts Council, they first appointed W.B. Such, but in the row over his, his alleged buying activities, of which, of course, he was utterly exonerated, uh, he felt it necessary to resign from the Arts Council, and a colleague of mine, Hamish Keith, was appointed instead. Uh, Hamish and I had known one another both uh, as friends and through Actors' Equity, because at one stage he had been uh, President of Equity, mm -hmm. while I was the National Secretary. And so he said to me on one occasion, look, uh, I think, you know, we're, we're thinking of appointing a Deputy Director of the Arts Council to, to carry out some functions that haven't been done previously. And, and I'd be quite pleased if you would apply, but don't take this as meaning. We're going to give you the job or anything of that sort. He said, it's not my decision, but I think you should. So I did. It looked interesting. I'd, I'd been three years in the PSA. I was getting a bit bored with it. I went to work for them and, and spent about a year and a half there, I think, from sometime early in 1975 to about the middle of 1976. Bear in mind that at the end of 1975, uh, the government changed and the government of Robert Muldoon replaced Bill Rowling's government, Rowling, of course, having replaced Kirk when he died in office as Prime Minister. Now, Muldoon and I were not friends. He and I had had several run-ins, partly to do with Actors' Equity, as it happened, because he was a talkback host uh, in opposition 
And at, at that stage, uh, we were rebuilding the union and we were trying to work out, because it was a technical legal matter, where our coverage under our industrial award began and ended, because you could only have those workers on board who, who in your union, who were covered by the provisions. And we were, we were just trying to map the edges. It wasn't clear whether talkback hosts fell into that category or not. We had, of course, as most unions did in those days, something called unqualified preference, which amounted to compulsory membership of the union if people were called upon to do so. Although equity was one of those unions where people just belonged because they wanted to, really. So we very rarely ever had to, to pursue that clause. But in this particular case, we thought it would be interesting. We chose two talkback hosts, one of which was Muldoon, because we knew he'd make a song and dance act out of it if he wrote him a letter and said he had to join the union. The other was Eddie Isby, who was also doing a talkback, but we chose him simply because we didn't want people to say, you're only picking on Muldoon because he's a National Party Member of Parliament. So we sent off these letters. We got an instant reply back from Isby joining the union. Muldoon went absolutely ballistic. It was all over the news media shouting that he was being bullied by the trade unions. I mean, what a joke. Imagine Muldoon being bullied by the trade unions. Never heard this rubbish. And he was afraid of no one. And, and, of course, he was making great political capital out of it, but he did what we wanted him to do. He rushed off to the Labour Department and got a ruling from them on whether or not talkback hosts were covered by the unqualified preference clause. And their general view was that probably these people were independent contractors, so they were not workers, strictly speaking, so the award didn't apply to them at all. And that was fine. That's what we wanted. We'd had the line drawn between the two. Muldoon then wrote us a triumphant letter saying, yeah, there you are, you see, you thought you could bully me into joining the union and I've seen you off the premises. I wrote a letter back to him saying, well, actually, that was not the motivation at all. What we were trying to do was to establish who was in and who was out of the union, and we chose you specifically for this purpose because we knew that you would go to the Labour Department. And, and therefore, having now clarified the matter, I, I welcome this opportunity to thank you for your cooperation. And, and he didn't like that at all kept writing letters to me because he felt he'd been made a fool of. He wouldn't leave it alone, but I just ignored him. So he knew me. Now there I was working for the Arts Council. At the same time, I was writing uh, as a television critic for the Evening Post and writing an occasional feature piece. I had a curious telephone call one day from someone who said, I just want to let you know that the new government is on your tail because a lot of the stuff I was writing for the Evening Post was not very favourable to the government. A member of the council, who shall be nameless, came into my office one day following a council meeting and he said, something's going to happen and I just want you to know that I'm not anything to do with it. And I thought, what? But he wouldn't say anything more. And away he went. About two weeks later, I was called to the executive committee of the council who said, oh, it's been decided there's going to be a reorganisation of the council and the position you occupy is going to disappear. You were vice... I was were, deputy, uh, director. deputy director. Yes, there were, two, there were two of us involved at a mm. senior level mm -hmm. in those sorts of positions. Somebody then subsequently sent me some papers that made it quite clear that this was the result of political interference of some sort. It was impossible to tie down, but somebody had told somebody to get rid of me. And so I went to live in England for three years. By the time I'd spent almost three years in England, it had convinced me that I was a New Zealander. 
Although I could have made quite a good career in England, and some people were making some suggestions for me for ways forward, one of which was that I might, for example, like to study for my bar exam. And another was that I might like to think about uh, the House of Commons, because there were quite a lot of New Zealand people, including Brian Gould, for example, uh, was a member of the House of Commons at that stage. Subsequently, of course, uh, Vice-Chancellor of uh, Waikato University. And he was a New Zealander, and Austin Mitchell was a member of Parliament by that stage, and quite a number of others. I had the right trade union credentials uh, and so on. But I thought to myself, eventually, look, what am I doing here? Why am I living in someone else's country? This is a foreign country. And so I think I'd go back to New Zealand, was really my thought. Now, around about the same time, my marriage came to an end, and that seemed to me to be quite a useful full stop to that whole process. And so I ended up towards the end of 1978, right at the end of 1978, I think, coming back to New Zealand with my son Jeremy. His brother and mother stayed briefly in Britain and then followed on. And, and that was the end of the marriage, really. I had a number of reasons for coming back to New Zealand, and there were a number of reasons why the marriage broke up. One of them had to do with the fact that I was gay. Now, people who haven't lived through that era of the 1950s and 60s in New Zealand really haven't any idea of the difficulties associated with that. Leaving aside the question that it was illegal and the worst thing that could happen to you was that you'd end up in jail, even if you didn't end up in jail, you would be treated with a fair measure of contempt and social ostracism. Now, I was well aware and had been since I was a teenager that I was gay. But I had a number of experiences that gave me good object lessons in what happened to people, from just from things I observed happening around me, about what happened to people who were openly gay in our society. Oh, the word wasn't even used then, of course. Bear in mind also that this was a society in which nobody talked about sex of any sort, let alone gay sex. And bear in mind that I was in a process of social change myself anyway. I was moving from, to put it loosely, in its most simple terms, from the working class to the middle class by way of the educational conduit. I was finding that hard enough anyway. I decided, no, too hard, too hard, I'll go into the closet. Although I didn't, of course, articulate it in quite that way. It was simply a choice I made. And as many gay men of my generation did, I ended up getting married and, and having a family. But all the time I was really uncomfortable with that and trying to make it work, and, and that was quite difficult. I had a number of gay relationships, both before I went to England and during the time I was in England including one with a bloke who wanted me to get, leave my family and go off and live with him in Australia. But I didn't follow through on any of that. But by the time I came to the end of my period in England and was thinking about going back to New Zealand anyway, I thought, oh, why don't we kill two birds with one stone? Why don't we bust up this marriage and I'll go back and live? And we'll see what happens. As it happened, my son Jeremy came to live with me. So that meant that any thing to do with coming out as a gay man had to be put on hold. Because he was uh, fairly traumatised by the breakup of the marriage. I had to spend a lot of time looking after him. I had to be there for him. And if there'd been any suggestion that I was conducting gay sexual relationships, then probably I would have lost custody of him, which would have been even more traumatic for him. So I just had to put the whole thing in, in a sort of equilibrium and, and just get on with my life in other ways. 
it's only more recently, maybe in the last, well, good friends of mine, of course, were well aware of everything that was going on. But the question you asked me specifically was what influences that had on, on the sort of writer I've become. And in my estimation, but this is just my own take on it, probably quite a lot. When I was at school and at university, I wrote quite a lot of fiction and poetry and so on. And I won't say I was good at it, but I could have developed along that line. But if you write fiction in that vein, then you really have to reveal quite a lot of yourself. I always remark to people that the task of a writer is to address the experience of your readers. And to do that, you have to say things to them which make a resonance for them. And if I was writing fiction or poetry, the resonances I would create would make it clear to people that I was gay. And so I think, looking back on it, that for whatever reason, that was part of my camouflage, that I decided not to go down that path. Mm. Why history? Well, I was going to write something, no doubt about that. I've been writing stuff since I was a child. You know, I'm never going to stop. History is something I'd always been interested in anyway, even though when I was a budding scientist, adolescence-wise. And history, too, if you, if you are in a society which you are aware, even though other people may not be, that it's rejecting you and your identity, then you actually become quite interested in your relationship with the society. And so the exploration of what it meant to be a New Zealander, what it meant for me to belong to this society, uh, became central to what I was writing. Mm -hmm. And the best way to express that, I found, was through writing New Zealand history, particularly social history. So I think, in retrospect, the fact that I was gay had quite a lot to do with the fact that I became a historian and a social and cultural historian in New Zealand. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We want to take a minute and let you know the results of the latest Writers Earning in New Zealand report. It shows that, on average, Kiwi writers earn only 31% of their personal income through writing, with over half the respondents saying they have to rely on their partner's income or having another job to survive. For this reason, NZSA continues to lobby for sustainable incomes for writers and advocate against moves to erode their rights. To join us, visit authors.org.nz. On his return to New Zealand, Tony Simpson became involved again with PNNZ. During his time away, the organisation had become better known and respected, yet as Tony tells Sarah, it was far from where it needed to be. Joining the committee, he and others began to work to create the organisation we have today. PN was a very different animal from the one it subsequently became as it gradually turned itself into the Society of Authors. Bear in mind it was very much a Wellington-based organisation. Mm -hmm although from time to time people would come from Auckland or wherever where they had a branch and would sit ex officio on the executive. Uh, it was a thoroughly under-resourced organisation. It spent most of its time collecting subs from people to send off its affiliation fees to international pen. It was clear to me from the moment that I joined the committee 
that really something had to be done with this organisation. And there are others there who felt exactly the same, um, specifically Fiona Kidman, who's, who's been a very long-term friend of mine. So we began to work together as a group to try and turn Penn into much more of a collectivist organisation that would represent the collective interests of writers. Now, we ran into quite a lot of opposition. There was a strong school of thought within Penn who thought that it should be a literary club, that its main function was to encourage fine literature and that we should not become involved in what they saw as political stuff. Now, my attitude is that that's stupid. If you want to encourage people to write fine literature, then you have to get political because you have to find ways of supporting them while they do it. The only way to do that is to go and talk to politicians. Unfortunately, of course, at that stage, we had a group of politicians who weren't all that sympathetic, including my old friend, Mr Muldoon. Well, you, you were in, on the committee from 1981, um, vice president. Yes. And Michael King had been president. Loris, then um, Michael moved to Auckland. Loris went to Monton for the um, yes. fellowship. Then someone stood in temporarily and then Fiona Kidman and then you and yes. that was the sequence. Do you have any recollections of how these different individuals shaped or, or left their mark on the organisation? Yes, Fiona was very much of the same view that I was, that we had to turn ourselves into a society of authors or a, or a much more collective mm. organisation. Michael, although he was a personal friend of mine, I don't recall him as having any particular major impact. Penn was very much a body that just jogged along and administered mm. its affairs and paid its affiliation fees and looked after prisoners in, of conscience and so on. But gradually we got more and more people on the executive who were of the mind that Fiona and I were, and so we started getting ourselves involved in that more collectivist approach. And eventually the question of uh, our affiliation to international pen came to a head. And I wrote to them and said, look, we seem to spend most of our resources paying your affiliation fees. You are very much a European-oriented uh, body. Many of my members are sceptical about what possible benefit we get from this affiliation. And therefore, we propose in future to pay you a small capitation each year, but we're not going to pay you the ordinary affiliation fee. And from that point, our relations with International Pen began to cool. They were perfectly cordial in their response. Tony, this has been, uh, looking over the last 10 mm -hmm. years, this was expressed over and over again. It seems not to have changed. Certainly, Alistair Campbell was very strongly against their continued relationship with yes. Pen. Ian Cross had been, uh, and always was that mm. New Zealand writers couldn't afford it, and they weren't actually getting anything from it. But nevertheless, it continued, and you yourself explained why when you were looking at dealing with the government because of being part of a, 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 an international organization gave you oh, your I, view I, think, I think there were very the good reasons I think there were very good reasons for pen association to continue in New Zealand it was on the basis of that for example that writers were represented on the authors fund mm. they were represented on the state literary fund that suddenly became the literature committee of the arts council and so on. And the fear was that if we set up a society of authors separate from that, then that position of involvement and influence would be lost. And, and it took a decade, I agree with you, to argue our way through that. And eventually the solution was that we would become a society of authors, but, but would incorporate pen as a function of that. Uh, and, and there were some quite bitter arguments about that as, as the years went by. 
I, at one stage, you may be aware, Michael King went off and registered the name New Zealand Society of Authors for himself so that nobody else could use it. He was so strongly opposed to the change. Eventually, somebody went to talk to him and, and wiser councils prevailed. And, and this is simply because they felt that pen shouldn't be political. That's right. Uh, another argument was over who should be allowed to belong. Because we're always getting letters from people saying, I'm, I'm a budding writer and I'd like to belong to Penn. And the executive would always say, no, 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 you can't belong to Penn until you're a published writer of, of some repute. 30,000 words. Whatever. <laughs> now, I took the view that if these people wanted to belong to Penn and pay their subscription, then I had no problem with that. Mm. And eventually we decided that there would be two forms of membership. And again, I think as I recall, this was my suggestion, although I hope I'm not stealing somebody else's suggestion, but I said, well, why don't we have a category of associate membership? So people who want to belong to Penn can become an associate member without voting rights, mm -hmm. but they can still become a member and attend the meetings and so on. And those who, who fit the, the literary criteria can become full members. And I think that's still the situation. Mm. This didn't actually happen until after your presidency. It's no, been right. talked about a that's long right. time with these ideas. Oh, yes. But they always take a long time to germinate and to yes. come to fruition. It's a question yes. of, of pushing them off and just... Sowing the seeds. They work their way through. Yeah. I can see that you were um, trying to make Penn more democratic and all the time returning to the membership for, yes. their, for ballots and having great frustration because mm. the members didn't really know, and many of them didn't um, have strong feelings one way or the other. And, and so the whole identity of the organisation was in question. Yes, I'd, eventually that again sorted itself out over time as more branches were established in mm. the centres, and I was quite active in, in trying to make sure that happened. But one of the advantages I had with my job at the PSA is I used to travel quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I'd make a point of, of running my travel into a weekend and then would spend a bit of time with the writers, locally in Christchurch or Dunedin or whatever. And gradually branches were set up. You'd get people who were active and interested and, and I always agitated to have the constitution democratised so it became a truly national body mm -hmm. rather than a Wellington committee with out-of-Wellington mm -hmm. hang-ons from time to time. Ultimately, of course, it's turned into precisely that sort of body, a highly professional body, which, which is very democratic and is run by its members on a national basis. You should also be aware that I was the first person who initiated uh, getting funding for the running of what was then Penn and became the society. I actually went along to the Council for Recreation and Sport and said, well, here's an important recreational activity. Would you like to give us some money, please? And they were a bit taken aback. They'd never had an application of this sort. As far as they were concerned, recreation was something you did on a paddock with a rugby ball so that they were really the Council for Sport and Sport. They thought they'd headed me off at the pass because they said, well, of course, you know, we, we base our, our support on the number of members uh, which belong to this particular code. They were still thinking in sport terms, you see, and they said on the basis of your membership, you'd be entitled to about $20. So I thought, oh, well, we'll have to sort that one out. And eventually went along and talked to the, uh, to the minister. Now, Bear in mind that although we had a national administration in place and Muldoon was leading it and he was very hostile to writers, he would never increase the money for the author's fund and so on and it became less and less and less in mm. value. We had a very sympathetic minister for the arts in Alan Hyatt. And so we knew that although he, we had to be a bit circumspect about it, we could always go and talk to Alan about the problems that we had. The whole thing started coming together as a national body and, mm. and pursuing some rather different mm. What I've, what I've referred to as collectivist agendas. Mm. Bear in mind that during this period also, we had the 50th anniversary of Penn in New Zealand, and there was quite a lot of discussion 
about what we should do to market the occasion. And eventually I came up with the idea of, of holding a conference, which was called The Business of Writing. And it was uh, quite a, a well-attended conference, a big conference held in the old National Museum. And, and uh, what it was all about was all of the non-literary aspects of being a writer. How to negotiate a contract, what the introduction of electronic technology was going to mean, copyrights, all of those things that are very important to writers uh, and which were barely thought about, but which I thought should be a very clear concern of a society of authors. That then led on to the production of Penn's major pamphlet, which goes by the same name, which is an annotated standard minimum terms contract. Uh, yes. and, and again, yes. I mean, Penn started to get into that sort of publication and writing. So it became much more of a support structure for writers rather than a place where writers could gather and read their poems mm. to one another. The minimum terms agreement, does, that again was something that was talked about for a long, yes. long time and then under your, uh, during mm. your period it was being... Yes, and eventually I, I, was the, I was the original author of those notes and the pamphlet, although okay. it's now been taken over by somebody else. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I'd had a lot of experience in negotiating contracts, not just for writers, but for actors and in broadcasting and so on. It surprised me how long it took, though. Why that? Well, these things always take a lot of time. You know, the amount of energy required to shuffle an inch is always monumental. And you have to get the agreement, yes. some agreement from mm. the publishers as well. Yes, and the whole mm. thing. You know, it spent, we spent a lot of time working on it. But eventually, if you hang in there, these things come to fruition. Mm. Just to recap about what was happening in 1983, I think that, that Penn as an organisation was at a pretty low ebb. I, there'd been an awful lot of disaffection in Auckland. People were saying in Auckland the same sorts of things that we were saying about international pen. You know, what am I getting for my money? Fiona Kidman, the outgoing president, was pretty uh, depressed by, by the state of the organisation. And, and uh, I was actually, to be frank, reluctant to become involved and be the president because I'd been too long a union organiser and what have you to want to take something on board because if you do, when there's a job work to be done, there's nobody to be seen for 100 miles, you know. Suddenly you're holding the baby. And of course the other side of it is, is that once you've completed the job, the woods are full of people who can tell you where you went completely wrong and if only you'd asked them at the time, they would have put you right and so on and so on. So it's, it's, it's a thankless task doing that sort of stuff. And besides, I had some things. I, mean, I wanted to do my own writing. I had my thing, some things going on in my private life. I had a full-time job. You know, I was trying to raise a son as a solo parent. But in the end, I was prevailed upon to do it because, to be frank, I don't think anybody else wanted to, and somebody had to do it. There were a number of things that we really had to get to grips with. We had to involve all of the branches in what was going on, all the, the active writers outside Wellington. We had to get a grip on the finances of the organisation. There wasn't enough money to do the things that we wanted to do and, and should have been doing at a very basic level. But at the same time, as always in these organisations, there was a reluctance to pay subscriptions, you know. And I've been paying $5 a year for the last 25 years and I don't see what's changed and I don't see why I should pay any more, was the attitude. Especially when the Auckland people thought they weren't getting anything, let alone the people who were outside Auckland and Wellington. And the Aucklanders thought that all the best writers were up there anyway. Oh, well, yes, but they always think that and probably still do, I should say. So we had those things to confront. And at the same time, we, we had to find a new identity and direction for the organisation. People have been talking for a long time about where it should go, and it was, it was time, really, to make some decisions about where we, where, where we go from here. In addition to that, politically, it was rough. I mean, this was right at the end of the Muldoon era. Uh, we'd, we'd, the whole of New Zealand had lived through that awful trauma of the Springbok tour, and, and people were still reeling from that. <sighs> the, the country just seemed to have ground to a halt. And, and Alan Hyatt, who'd been our only friend in the Cabinet, was about to retire. 
and we had no idea who'd replace him or, or whatever. Uh, and although we'd lobbied a few of the Labour people, and they'd been quite helpful, including Jonathan Hunt, uh, we weren't sure who'd get the nod. And so it was a bit of a daunting task, but I just thought and said to the other members of the executive, well, let's get on with it. So they sent me off around the branches. I talked to people in Dunedin, where Joan de Hamel was, was very active and she was very instrumental in setting up an active and, and lively branch. Because bear in mind, Dunedin's always had this good literary reputation. And at that stage, there was a, there was a group of writers living down there, people like Roger Hall and so on, who, who were some of our leading writers. And, and so there was, there was plenty of scope. Christchurch, there were a couple of activists there, including a bloke, uh, a very active bloke called Chris Moyser, who, who uh, was keen to set up a branch. I made the point of going and seeing them, and, and we did a bit of spade work there. Uh, the Auckland people, of course, had to be spoken to a number of times, you know, and, and it was always difficult to get them all at the same meeting and, and so on, but, but we got over those humps as well. As a result, the organisation eventually began to move, but of course it was, it was a slow, slow business. Uh, and it wasn't really until well after my time that uh, quite a number of those things that I and others had initiated came to fruition. Like Fiona, you left a little bit despondent about what you had achieved, or simply because the membership themselves didn't grasp it, did they? They didn't. You had such ambivalent responses when you canvassed them. You didn't get replies, and they didn't really know where they wanted to go. And well, I tend to be less despondent than Fiona. You know, because of the experience I've had, the professional work that I've done, I'm aware that you just cast your bread on the waters and eventually uh, something will come of it. I mean, you might just end up with soggy bread, of course, but, but uh, in this particular case, eventually people began to see the point and it began to work like a bit of leaven in, in some dough and, and now we've ended up with an organisation running things for writers, which is very much more professional. Now, I don't claim uh, any major credit for that, but I think that from the early 80s, a group of us set that process and mm. train mm. that has now produced mm. the organisation that you see. Yeah, I should say it was that you said it was a thankless task, um, and that was one of the reasons you resigned at the time. Oh, well, I was sick of it. I mean, I'd, I had other things that I wanted yes. to do. Well, uh, I mean, in it was my a life. huge burden looking at mm. not only on you, but on, the other, on the, those other members, the time that it took um, the president and the um, mm. combined was at least oh, yeah. a minimum of 20 hours a week. That's right. Uh, and bear in mind that we weren't being paid for this. Mm. Really. So fitting it in and... Mm. Sure. And we all had other things to do and, and I wanted to go off overseas, which I did, and, mm -hmm. and uh, just for a short period. Mm -hmm. and, and so I handed it on to others. You know, I mean, I've, I've always been of the view that if you belong to an organisation, then, then everybody has to be prepared to shoulder the burden mm -hmm. from time to time. And I figured that I'd done enough. I'd been on the executive and I'd been the vice president and the president and, and time somebody else picked up. As I used to say to people, we've got about 900 members. If all of them do two years as president, then that's our president's sorted out for the next 900 times two years. When you left, um, or when you finished your presidency in 1985, yes. 84, what was happening in your life then? What were you working on most? What, was, what book were you writing? Oh, well, uh, I had finished a book during that period called A Vision Betrayed, which was about New Zealand democracy and the way in which our constitution as a democratic uh, functioning um, thing had, had, in my view, failed. And I was also actually working on some stuff which was to do with food. 
so from the sublime to the ridiculous, or vice versa. I was doing quite a lot of writing at that period, uh, and, and so I really felt that I had to cut back on some of my responsibilities, and, and it was the pen thing that went. Mm. And of course, uh, as I remarked, I was, I was solo parenting a, a, a growing boy, uh, and that takes an awful lot of time and energy. And I was doing a full-time job at the mm. same time. Mm. Mm. In the 1990s, you were, you were appointed to one of the various... You were judging and you were... Um, I didn't do a lot of judging, but I was on the on. board of the Start Centre. That's right. I'd, I'd, I've never been quite sure how that happened. I mean, I was aware of the Start Centre. I knew what it was and what it did. And quite out of the blue one day, I received, I forget the year, I received a letter from the Vice-Chancellor's office saying, you have been nominated uh, to serve as a representative on the Start Centre board, uh, representing what, I was never quite sure. If you, if you agree, we'll appoint you to it. And I thought, oh, yes, fair enough. And so I spent, I think, nine years all up on that board. And we used to meet about five or six times a year, I guess, sometimes less. Mm -hmm. We had a number of functions, but the most important of which was appointing the Start Fellow for the, for the year. It was a most interesting experience because the whole purpose of the Start Centre, of course, as far as possible, was to build a bridge between the, the academy and the town so that people who wouldn't normally have the opportunity as, as writers of high standard to take a year off and work within the context of a university and all of the research support and so on that that entailed, but also using the resources, part of the deal of, of Wellington, like the National Library and the archives and so on, the Turnbull, to, to spend a year writing in that very, very supportive environment. It's a very good thing. Uh, and, and to an extent it worked, although most of the people who sat on the board were academics, and, and we'd regularly replay the same conversation, where we'd decide to review the description of the Stout Fellowship. And it would say that this was a position for a scholar of high quality to blah, blah, blah. And I would always say, we'd always have the same conversation, I'd always say, no, no, that should say a writer of high quality. And they would say, well, what's the difference? And I'd say, well, a high quality scholar is somebody who does research at a very high level uh, within an institutional and usually academic context, uh, and writes it up afterwards as part of the deal. I said, a writer is somebody who writes for the purposes of addressing the experience of their reader, and sometimes that involves significant research. And they would invariably say, yes, but what's the difference? And so I could never get them to see the difference between an academic and a writer. I suppose in the end it was a game with a serious intent, uh, and, and I could never resist the temptation to tease them with it because I knew the conversation would always run in the same way. But in a way that spells out for me the difficulties associated with writers who associate themselves with academia, because mm -hmm. they're always likely to be trapped into that thing where they have a role which is not quite the same, mm -hmm. could be very different from the role of a writer. And I think that's a very important distinction to bear in mind. It's one of the reasons why I regard myself as a writer, you know, and why I've stayed away from academia, mm. although I do go to the academia from time to time. Well, you were working at the Start Research Centre yourself, weren't you? When you yes, I had, a, I had a short fellowship there, and it was quite helpful. 
One of the interesting things to me, though, was that although I was there as a historian and was doing historical research at the time, I never heard a Dickie Bird from the History Department. Part of the, part of the role, of course, of, of occupying that fellowship, which was for two months and was partly underwritten by Penn and, and partly by a private business, and provided you with an office and, and a computer, and that was about all. Part of the deal was you'd make yourself available for lectures. So I just let people know that I was there. Mm -hmm. And I think I heard from the industrial relations people. I spoke to them. And there were a couple of other groups, faculties I heard from too, but the history department didn't really want to know me. Had you written the um, immigrants by then? No. Not yet. No, but I was still doing some of the research mm -hmm. for that. I was still working mm -hmm. on it. In fact, that was one of the things I took the opportunity to research that while I, while I was there. But, yeah, I mean, I found that attitude interesting. was able to laugh about it because I'm fairly cynical about these things. It's a different style, too, isn't it? Mm. The, um, in, uh, the academic style. You could say if you, you, your job is to make history palatable for your average reader. I wouldn't say palatable, but I would say accessible. Accessible and palatable. And, and, <laughs> yes, but some, some academic historians are not very good writers. Mm. And so the material they're dealing with uh, is... Fascinating material, but accessing it is a bit like trying to force your way through a bramble thicket backwards. You know, I mean, you can't. You just sit there thinking, "Good grief!" You know, are people expected to to read this and relate to it? You know, and I've never thought that reading was supposed to be a punishment, but sometimes reading academic works of history, you get the impression that that's exactly what the author thinks that it is, and that seems to me to be a, a totally negative and unproductive exercise. Writing is a skill, and you can't automatically expect somebody mm -hmm. who is a highly uh, skilled scholar to necessarily be a good writer. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you find the two in conjunction, of course, it's an absolute delight. And did you find the, um, the social association with other writers working in the South Centre useful? Mm. Yes, although I'm not one of those writers that finds it terribly helpful to talk about writing. Mm. I don't, you know, I've got my own ideas about, about how to write and, and what to do and what it means and so on. And occasionally I'll share those ideas with some writers who are particular friends of mine, but uh, if I'm with another writer, I think I'd rather talk about something else entirely. If I'm not writing and I'm with another writer, then we're probably trying to relax. And that's like asking a builder to do a bit of carpentry when he goes home at night. You know, he doesn't want to do that. Thinking of other writers who were your friends, Michael King was one. Um, tell me about your relationship with him. Yeah, I, I knew Michael for a very long time. Interestingly enough, we met first at a youth conference in Otaki in the early 70s. He was taking part in it, and I went up to cover it for, the, for Radio New Zealand. We met in that context and, and got to know one another, uh, and so we used to see quite a lot of one another because he subsequently came to Wellington and I think was teaching journalism at the Polytech. His background was in newspaper journalism. Uh, and then, of course, we shared a publisher in Alistair Taylor, who published both of our first books, my book, The Sugar Bag Years, his book, Moco. In fact, <laughs> I remember Michael ringing me up once and saying, have you had your royalties for The Sugar Bag Years? And I said, you bet I have. He said, well, I haven't had a dicky bird for Moco. I said, have you asked him about it? Oh, yes, he keeps promising me stuff and he never gives me any money. I said, well, sue the bastard. And he said, oh, couldn't do that. Oh, no, that wouldn't be right. And I said, well, then you can kiss your bloody royalties goodbye because probably Alistair knows that. So Michael took a very much less trenchant view of, of relationships with publishers than I did. Did he ever get his royalties? Oh, probably not. 
but, but that's more of a tribute to the publisher in question than, than anything else. Alistair's been running a, a... The Australian courts called it a scam. I wouldn't quite. And in fact, if you know anything about the history of publishing, European publishing, you'll know that what he's doing goes back to at least the 18th century. And what you do is you announce that you're about to publish a book and you ask for subscribers. And if you get enough subscribers, then you start writing the book, which has not actually ever been written. But, Or you write to people and say, look, I'm doing a dictionary of famous people and you're obviously going to be in it. So uh, well, I wonder if you mind sending me some biographical notes. And, and by the way, I'm sure you'll want to buy a copy of the limited edition of this book for $500 yeah. and so on. So he's, he's uh, sometimes over the years has been running some questionable things in publishing and more recently the Australian shut down on him and said that he was running a scam and, and he's not allowed to publish in Australia or whatever. Michael and I have had our ups and downs. I mean, we're both historians and historians are notorious for not agreeing. Somebody once said, apropos historians, if you took all the historians in the world and laid them end to end, they'd all point in different directions. And that's understandable because history is a debate. It's not, there is no received version. Uh, and so historians argue among themselves, and sometimes those arguments can get quite bitter. But Michael and I never got to that stage, and we were always very cordial. And, and I was deeply distressed when he died, of course, when, in such tragic circumstances. Because I think he was a very good historian, and that he lifted our history, put it on a new plane entirely. We also did have a lot in common in that you, that you both wrote accessible history. Yes, neither of us were academics, mm -hmm. really, not in, not, in the, not in the true sense, although I think he spent more time in universities than I did. Uh, and, and both of us were more interested in addressing a general readership of New Zealanders. Mm -hmm. We began on the, on the assumption that not all academics begin on, that, that by and large most of their fellow citizens want to read about their country's history. And, and the last 30-odd years have shown that to be absolutely right. There's been an, an explosion in the writing and reading of our history, and Michael contributed very materially to that. James McNeish was another yeah. friend. Uh, James is still a friend. Uh, I first met James in the broadcasting context, of course, because for many years he earned his living partly as a freelance broadcaster, partly in New Zealand and partly in Britain. I've always admired his capacity for what I guess you would describe as entrepreneurship. Uh, he can always find a way of producing a publication that meets the needs of finance and the market. That, to me, in a sense, is, is a truly professional writer, somebody who understands that you are not writing literature in a vacuum. Mm. You are writing for a readership, you are working within an industry that is driven by market considerations, and therefore, if you're going to be a successful writer, without compromising yourself, you have to learn to take those considerations into account. And so in some ways he's archetypal of, of the sort of writer that many New Zealand writers have become, a professional writer who can work in all media. You've been listening to an interview from 2005 between Tony Simpson and Sarah Gaitanos on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History podcast. What we've played today is only a small portion of their discussion which covered other aspects of his life and career. The full tapes are available at the Turnbull Library of New Zealand. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you listen. Thank you.
This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby McLeod with audio support by Jana Witter for the New Zealand Society of Authors with funding from Pub Charity Limited. Noturno by Ottorino Respighi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. The audio was digitised and provided by the Alexander Turnbull Library. I'm Karen Hay, and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Ka kite anō.